should we set the scene? Yeah. We're, we're under blue lighting. We're sipping on some chilled martinis, some blue cheese olives. Mm. This is Beta Cell, a show about people living with type 1 diabetes. I'm Craig Stooming. Music has mm-hmm. always been a big part of your life. It is, yeah. If you were to pick one song to sort of describe your relationship with diabetes. Oh, wow. Could you think of one? Oh, wow. You're putting me on the spot there. Yeah. Um, hmm. No, I can't think of any songs at all. <laughs> I guess I'll just talk about my relationship with it, and maybe a song will naturally yeah. Yeah. pop into my head. Yeah, we can we can come back to it. We might later. have to come back yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, it's a thing that I have that I wish I didn't, but I have found, especially since getting a correct diagnosis, I have found that, I mean, there will always be surprises. There will always be bad days, but... Uh, it is a thing that I can manage if I am mindful, you know, if I like, if I think about what I'm doing before I do it, I will be fine. And knowing that has made my whole life better. At first I was, uh, I was told that I was type two and, and I was put on medication that made me very sick and that did nothing. And I couldn't, I like, no matter what I did with my body, with my diet, I couldn't get my sugars down. And then I went on insulin and that was great. And there was a, you know, I, th- there was a way to manage it, but I would get occasional lows. I couldn't run the way that I liked to. I couldn't bike the way that I liked to because I didn't know how to, how to nourish myself and how to, you know, offset the, the exercise effect with food or, or with whatever chemical gels we're carrying around in our pockets or, or glucose tablets or whatever. Now that I feel like I kind of have it together a little bit. I mean, again, there will always be surprises, but I'm not, I'm not as panicked by the surprises anymore. And when they come, I know how to, to fix them. And that makes me feel good. That just, and that, and that good feeling, it moves on to other parts of my life. You know what I mean? Like I have found calm in a real life, life or death situation. So I'm able to be calmer about things that are less important. Things that used to really stress me out. I can kind of breathe about. So in a way, Getting more comfortable with type one, mm-hmm. getting some control or, or yeah. at least knowing you can control it yeah, has allowed you to control other parts of your life. Yeah. I mean, this is a thing that could kill me. If I do something wrong, I could legitimately die. You know, I could pass out. I could be in a coma. I could, you know, do long-term damage to my organs, but I don't because I'm able to kind of keep myself in a healthy range most of the time. Uh, so then when it's like, when there's something going on with work or when I can't, like when I'm trying to write something and it's not coming to me, I don't, I no longer say I'm a terrible writer or I'm terrible at what I do for a living. It's just like, okay, this is just, this is a natural hurdle and I can jump over it. I'll be okay. Speaking of like life or death situations, Mm -hmm. do you remember your first low or your first bad low blood sugar? I do remember my first really bad low. I had maybe been on insulin for a couple of weeks and I had my Dexcom for the first time. And I was just, I was fascinated with that. I was constantly checking it. I was so, I was so delighted that I was like, that it was always gray. You know what I mean? Like I was yeah. in a good range. And, uh, and I remember one Saturday, it was uh, a little after lunch. 
I had like four units of uh, Nova log or whatever it was and a sandwich. And, uh, and I was like, and I stayed at a healthy range. And so then like an hour later, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for a run because I just didn't think about it. And I hadn't really talked with my diabetes educator or my endocrinologist about the fact that exercise, especially running, especially things that are kind of long cardio type situations can really make you drop. So I went out for a run. I brought no money. I brought no glucose uh, sources. I brought no gels. I brought no identification. I just got out and ran because my, I felt so good. And I just wanted to like, I just wanted to share it with the world. So I, I went out and I ran and, uh, and I'm running away and I, you know, it was, I was maybe at like 140, and then I was at 130, and then I was at 120. And I was like, this is great. And then I was maybe a mile and a half from home. And, and the thing beeped at me and I had never heard this beep before. And it was a fall rate alert. And I went, I had gone from 120 to 80. And, uh, and I was a mile and a half from home. Just like that in five minutes. Just like that in five minutes, basically. And then it was just sort of that like cumulative. I mean, you know how it is sometimes, you know, you get to a certain point in your run and then you drop. I knew a little bit about the fact that Dexcom was about 15 minutes behind what is real. Um, I knew that I was dropping very quickly, uh, and I didn't know anything else. And so I just like, I saw it and I thought, oh, this is probably not good. And I, I didn't know that I was able to sprint a mile and a half, but I am. And, uh, and I got home and by the time I got home, I was uh, in the fifties somewhere like low fifties and still dropping. And God, uh, my poor boyfriend was taking a nap and I just came, like, it came in and I was just Ugh! like shaky and sweaty, I mean, sweaty anyway. Um, uh, and I just ran and I drank a Gatorade and I ate like a billion, uh, tabs and I just waited and I was like, I'm, this is how I'm going to die. Like, I just didn't think about it. And I, did, I and I, I realized then like a. Uh, a low feels almost exactly like a panic attack, which I was also having. And I just remember thinking like, oh no, this is, oh, this is no joke. I had never had a low in my life. And, and I, and I, like, I still had insulin on board. You know, there was still the exercise effect. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, I was at 300 because I, you know, ate all of the glucose in all of the world. But I remember thinking, but after that, I was like terrified. So I would pull back on insulin a little bit. I would, if, you know, I was having what I thought was a 30 gram uh, meal, I would say, eh, maybe it's 20, you know, and run a little high because I was so afraid of going low. Mm. In the time since then, I have made it my, my aim to like, not to live in them, but to get comfy in like the 60s and 70s, just to know what they feel like, to know like how, like just exactly how much to take to lift myself out of it um, and just not to panic because the panic is worse than the thing. Yeah. Or it feels yeah. worse than the thing. Yeah. There's, there's some comfort in knowing that like you can get out of it. Yeah. Not knowing that is really terrifying, especially when you're a grown up. I think when you're a kid, you just don't get it. You know, probably when you were 13 and you were low, you were just like, I'll be fine. And you were fine because a kid thinks he's, you know, invincible. Yeah. No. You know, a man in his forties has a, has a strong sense of his mortality. You remember everything. Like, I don't remember my first low. I don't remember right. my first high. You know, I barely remember getting diagnosed. Yeah. When you get older, you understand more about how many ways you can die. Yeah. You know, um, you, you get checked for different types of things. Your friends start to, you know, go on statins and have mm -hmm. heart events and things like that. Death is a thing that is at your door at all times. So you, you think about it. A couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I flew to St. Louis where I grew up and to, to visit my family and my mom picked me up 
And when I got off the plane, I guess I had over bolused for whatever it was that I ate on the plane. I got the little beep, you know, as we were landing that I was low and dropping a little bit and I still had active insulin. And so by the time I got to baggage claim where my 85 year old mother was, I was legitimately like in the fifties somewhere and still dropping and showing the outward signs of a low, which was that I was really shaky and a little sweaty and a little out of it. And the way that my mom deals with any kind of stress is just by talking, just talking about whatever, like, oh, look at that. There's the arch and oh, 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 you're at number four. You're at baggage claim number four. You've been there before, whatever, just nonstop like chatter. And, And I was, you know, just like throwing glucose tablets down my throat and trying not to like freak her out any further, but it's, you know, it's, it's a thing you have to educate people about, you know, you have to, you have to say like, okay, I'm going to be shaky for a minute. I might need a moment of silence, but you know, just let, let me sit here for a minute and like house a bottle of juice and then I'll be fine in like 10 minutes. How did your mom react when you were diagnosed with type one? When I was diagnosed, my dad was, was in the later stages of myeloma just like a, a plasma cancer. And he, he died of that about a year later. I didn't want to um, like burden either of them with what I was going through. I didn't tell them anything about type two mm-hmm. when I was misdiagnosed with that. I just didn't mention it because I felt like I'll be fine. And there's nothing they really need to know about. When you're type one, you're going to have to excuse yourself and inject in the bathroom. You're going to have this weird thing where you test your blood sugar. There are accessories yeah. that you're going to need to That's explain a to people. Thing to hide. It's like, a hard to hide. difficult thing yeah. to hide. Yeah. And it's like, I'm already the one from the family who moved to LA. So I don't want to be disappearing to the bathroom under mysterious circumstances. You know what I mean? Because I think it would be very easy for them to think that I'm on heavy drugs. Yeah. And when I told them the way I framed it was that I mean, I told them the whole thing when I told them that I was type one. And so the spin was, I thought I had one thing that I was not successful at controlling. Now I know I have this other thing, which I can control very easily. It's just going to like, here are the steps. Here are some things you're going to see me do. I didn't want to hang too much stuff on them. it, It was important that the PR spin be that I am on my way to being healthy because when I was diagnosed with type one, I was, and I've, I mean, this is never a thing I ever thought I would be, but I was too skinny. I spent a few months with blood sugars in the three hundreds and I couldn't do anything about it. And so I was pissing out all of my calories and I was, you know, I had all of the outward symptoms of type one to a point where I was like, I'm gaunt. I'm too, like, I need to put on weight and I couldn't. And, uh, and I know that they noticed that. So it was, it was important that I tell them I was, I was a little bit on the wrong path medically for a while. I'm now on the correct path. And here's what this thing is. And they still don't, or my, my, my uh, mom and, and, you know, the, the rest of the family, like they don't hundred percent get it. I, you get a lot of questions like what's a carbohydrate. And it's like, I don't, it's a, I don't, it's a, like, I can tell you like what my ratio is of, you know, grams of carbohydrate to units of insulin, but what specific, what actually a carbohydrate is, I don't. No, I'm going to have to send you to Wikipedia, yeah. you know? I guess it's it's different for you because when you're diagnosed as a kid, mm-hmm. your parents are the ones sort of looking out for you. Sure. But then later in life, when the children sort of become the caretakers, yeah. you don't want to feel like your mom still has to like take care of you mm-hmm. and obviously burn her with all of that. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting 
thing to be diagnosed with type 1 later in life. It is. It definitely is. Yeah. Especially since you sort of have to, you have to navigate this whole dumb thing of like nobody understanding which diabetes is which, mm-hmm. you know, you have to deal with a lot of like, oh, okay. Oh, you're an adult. So it must be, it must be type two. And add to that in my twenties and thirties, I was overweight. Like in my twenties and early thirties, I was, you know, I wasn't like, you know, I didn't have to shop at special stores for my clothing, but like I was definitely overweight. And so then to 10 years after losing weight to find out that I am a kind of diabetic, it's like my tendency is to, um, is to say that I brought it on myself or that it was because of my nutritional choices when I was, you know, 23 mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and that is also sort of the rest of the world's view as well. Like, you know, you kind of, you did this to yourself a little bit, yeah. which I don't think is true. I know type twos with abs and shoulders. And I know, you know, people who are super big and drink big gulps and don't get any exercise and have perfectly, you know, are perfectly healthy as far as I know. When you were diagnosed as type two, Mm -hmm. did you feel that guilt? Did you feel like it was your fault or how did, how did you feel? I definitely felt that guilt for sure. Um, How old were you? I was, it was 2009. So I was 38 and it was, it was literally five days after the New York city marathon. And, uh, and my, you know, my A1C was high. I don't remember what it was, but it was, it was high. And so, and my doctor was like, you absolutely a hundred percent have type two diabetes. Mm. And like, I remember him saying that, like you absolutely positively 100% have this diagnosis. And, uh, and I thought that does not make sense. Cause you had just run a marathon. I had literally just run a marathon. I had been doing uh, triathlons for, you know, God, like six or seven years by that point. Like I say, I definitely was, I mean, there was a period in my life when I was definitely overweight, but even during that period, I was very active. I ran a ton. I like, I played tennis. I was like, I had good endurance. I was just a heavy guy. Mm -hmm. And also like, you know, my diet wasn't great, but I didn't, you know, I didn't do a lot of the, you know, sugary beverages and things that really like spike and crater you and all that. So it didn't make sense. And I remember talking to like, uh, my doctor put me uh, in touch with a nutritionist and I said all this stuff to her. I was like, I'm really active and I know that I could stand to lose some weight, but I'm like, this, this diagnosis really does not make sense to me. Uh, especially since after moving to LA in 2002, my diet had gotten really good. I was eating a lot of, you know, fresh vegetables and cooking at home and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and she said, well, we're often the result of choices we made when we were much younger, which there's some truth to that. Mm. But it also sort of made me feel guilty. And it also wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to tell a lot of people because, you know, you make jokes about diabetes, yeah. you know? Yeah, my Catholic guilt kept, kept me from mentioning it, to, mentioning it to too many people. How long were you misdiagnosed with type 2 before you were diagnosed as type 1? And and how did that make you feel? So I was diagnosed with type two in 2009 and, uh, the end of 2009. And let's see, at the end of 2015 is when I started to really is when I was just like constantly in the bathroom and constantly drinking water and losing weight, uh, like way more quickly than I could like put it back on. And, uh, so yeah, so I guess six years, something like that. 
And did you suspect that the type 2 diagnosis was wrong? Or? Yeah, I yeah. did. I really suspected it was wrong because no, nothing was helping. You know, like metformin wasn't helping. I kept waking up at higher and higher levels. I would always test first thing in the morning and it would be like 120 and then it would just keep creeping up and up and up. And then it was 180 and then it was, you know, around 200. And then in 2015, it was like I would wake up in the 200s and then up to 300. And like after having, you know, like a, a kale salad for dinner, I would wake up with these crazy high levels and, and, you know, and I was losing weight and it just didn't make sense to me. And so in my head, I was like, I might be type one. And, and I remember saying to my doctor, like at a, at a physical, like, can we, I know that I'm on metformin and I'm probably type two, but can we just run the tests and just make a hundred percent sure? So you knew there were tests. I knew there were tests. And he was like, no, I don't think it's worth it. Like you were, you know, you were 30 eight or whatever I was, it like it's type two just with certainty. And I, th you know, I did, it didn't make sense, but a doctor is a doctor and I'm not one. And so that was kind of that. And I, I just, I remember really vividly, I had dinner with, uh, with a friend and I had, I had like the carbless, the most carbless dinner ever. And it's still like, I still couldn't come down. And I thought something, something is definitely wrong. And I remember I changed, uh, at the end of that year, is when I when I didn't make the SAG minimum to get SAG insurance because I, I like had shifted my uh, emphasis to writing and I wasn't doing much on air stuff so like my SAG earnings were low and they weren't enough to meet the minimum for insurance coverage so I was going to start having to do it on my own at the end of 2015 I started looking for plans where I could. I forget what they're called, but it's like, it's a certain kind of plan where you can take yourself to a specialist instead of having to be referred to a specialist. Yeah. Cause I kind of got the feeling that my, my GP would not refer me just, he would be like, just trust me. It's not working. Take more. Yeah. And, uh, so I, so I got whatever plan that is. And, uh, and at like January one, I was like, okay, I'm going to find myself an endocrinologist. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get this whole battery of tests. And I, and I did on the, the first week, they were all back in their office. I went in Dr. Freebie's office and I said, I am told I am type two. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Can we just run the full battery of tests? And he did. And it's type one. And it was like, okay, okay, good. Now, now we're getting somewhere. Now, now I can actually take an active role. And did that remove the guilt? A little bit. Yeah. You know what? It did. It did remove the guilt. Yeah. Because it's just, I mean, the, it, the guilt will always be there because I'm Catholic and there's nothing I can do about it, but it removed some of the guilt because it's a thing that, it, that I was going to present with at some point in my life or another. And now it's something that I can like through work and conscientiousness, I can take care of myself. And I was very excited because metformin made me so sick. I would vomit so hard and like, and so unpredictably, like it just twice a month and never at any predictable time. It was never like, oh, after I eat this thing, I throw up or, or at this time of night, I throw up. I would just find myself with the worst nausea I have ever felt in my entire life. Just like call an ambulance level nausea, bad news. So I'm glad that's over. Yeah. Haven't thrown up in a couple of years and I don't miss it. When do you reach out and find other people with type one and, and why? First of all, um, when my doctor, when my endocrinologist said, we're putting you on insulin, I was like, terrific, 
great. Now I've got a thing that I can do. I was, I couldn't wait to learn about all the different kinds and all the different, you know, dosages and my ratio and all that kind of thing. It was like, there's data that I can throw myself into that makes me feel good. And then my, uh, diabetes educator at the time, uh, she said, you should go, she called it diabotribe, but diatribe.org, I think it's a, it's a website where there's, you know, there's news and there's information and there's community and whatever. I think she, uh, turned me on to beyond type one, but she also said, go to meetup.com and find a meeting for adult type ones. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to not do that, but sure. And, uh, at the time I was like, this is a thing like now that I have data and now that I have, you know, stuff that I can research, this is fine. This is a thing I can take care of on my own. I've got it under control. But then I had that first low that was absolutely terrifying. And it hit me like, this is not going to be super easy. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, it makes sense for me to talk to other type one people just, just to make it feel normal. And, uh, were you looking for normalcy or were you looking for just answers? Like, how do I exercise? How do I do yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I was looking for just, you know, for it to be like a part of my life. Like it's, it's, I don't know, when I see people who can just sort of incorporate it into their lives and it can, they can talk about it for an hour or they can not talk about it for a week, but it's like a part of their lives that they just do casually on their own. It's effortless. They just, you know, pull out the thing, boom, 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 give it yourself, whatever. And then they're, they're fine. And again, nobody's ever completely fine. There are, you know, curveballs and whatever. But that to me is very soothing when I just see people going about their business in a, in a, in what I perceive as a regular way. That's, that makes me feel good. But also I remember going to that first meetup. I remember sitting there in my car and feeling very much the same way as like, when I went to a gay bar for the first time, because I just, because at that time, I mean, of course I wanted to meet people and of course I was like young and, you know, and I wanted to date and hook up and all that, but I also just wanted to be around people who were like me and just see the, the, the spectrum of human behavior. I was less good about, about being in gay bars. Cause I, you know, whatever you, that's a whole other situation, but you like, you know, you see people that you, that you don't relate to and you get mad and it's like, Oh, I'm not like that. I hate this. This music is, you know, they're playing too much disco. I can't stand it. Whatever. Like it's all tied in with self-hatred and whatever. But this was just like, this was something that really was kind of divorced from self-hatred and like, you know, the, it, whatever. I had never been told that type one diabetics are sinful or anything. It was just pure information. You know, I was just going in to, to be around people like me to learn how to live the rest of my life this way. And it was just like, I'm just going to go. And it doesn't matter if I don't become great friends with all of these people. It's just, we're there to like, to get information into maybe possibly, you know, you could say something that could resonate with somebody else or whatever. And so I went in and there were, there was a Craig Steubing there. Mm-hmm. There were a few other people who, you know, for whom diabetes is like, it's, you know, a part of your life. And, you know, it's something that you advocate about and you speak about and, and you do good work and all that. There were people who were diagnosed more recently than I was. You know, there, there was a woman there who had just found out like a month ago and she also was an adult. I think somebody had like a Will Bolas for bagels or something t-shirt. And I was like, okay, I probably won't ever be the kind of person who wears that sort of t-shirt, but you know, it doesn't, I don't have to be, that's fine. And I just remember us all sitting there and talking and sharing information and it felt really good. And, and I, I remember feeling my shoulders like getting 
out of my ears, you know, and down to where shoulders should be. Like, it just felt like, oh, okay, this is, okay. Yeah. I got a community. This is life. I'm going to live. And then I remember you emailing me like that next week mm -hmm. asking me about exercise. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what it was. There was something about like eating an apple before think, you run. I think, yeah, my question was something like, uh, how do I exercise? <laughs> and uh, yeah, like what can I eat? Because honestly, at the beginning, you know, you have these basic questions. Like literally, how do I, how do I not die? Yeah. You know, that how do I live? Nobody tells you. Nobody tells you. You have to figure it out on your own. And like, and you still, like, I still figured it out largely on my own through my own experience and stuff. But it is so helpful to have other people who've been through it and are alive. Mm -hmm. That is, to me, the genius of type one run, not to blow smoke, but going for a long run with people who have been at this longer than you and have been running for a long, long time and are alive people. <laughs> you know, that's really yeah. so powerful because the fear is that you're going to die, yeah. you know? Or you're going to hurt yourself somehow. So to be around people who are just like, nah, it's fine. You know, to have a low around people who are like, here, just let's, we're going to stop for two seconds, have two tablets, chill out for a minute, then we'll keep going is so powerful. It makes it feel okay to not be okay. Right. Because you'll be okay again if yeah. you just do these things. Yeah. Just the other day, I was, uh, I was out for a run. It was late afternoon. I didn't have any active insulin, but I just, you know, I was like at 200 ish or something. And I thought, okay, well I have been meaning to run anyway. I'll go for a mm -hmm. run. And two miles into it, my Dexcom says I'm, you know, at a hundred and two hours are going down. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, well uh, that's scary. And you know, a couple of years ago, I probably would have had a massive panic attack that wouldn't have helped anything, but I had all the stuff that I needed to have on me. I had a couple of tabs and I had a gel and I was fine. And I knew that I was going to be fine. And I knew that I was going to be fine because I have spent time around people who have diabetes and who run and who are fine, you know, and it's not always going to be perfect. And you're going to have some sketchy moments, yeah. but if you do the right things, you're going to be fine. And I also know that I can call anybody and we live in LA, so it would take you an hour to get to me, but I know that I can like, there are people I can call or text and just say, you know, I'm at 50 and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And they'll guide me through it. Yeah. So has your relationship with exercise changed? That seemed like, you know, you ran a marathon mm -hmm. right before you were diagnosed as type two, mm -hmm. exercising a lot to try and keep your blood sugars down. That didn't happen. Right. Went on insulin, getting all these lows, learning how to exercise again. Was it important to you to be able to get back into running yeah. and triathlons before? Does that mean something to you? Yeah. I mean, it's a, I love exercise, but B it's also now, now it's like personal, you know, it's like a fuck you kind of, you know, like to get out on the road or to get on a bike or to get in a, in a pool is like, I'm going to do this. And I don't, you know, nothing's going to stop me. Despite I, I, diabetes. Despite diabetes. I have the tools to survive, you know, an eight mile run. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do. And, uh, and it feels, I don't know, it feels really nice. It just feels really nice where before a long run was just like a thing to do to pass the time or whatever. Now it's like, it feels like an act of defiance, you know, yeah. like I'm going to get through it. I get that. No, I get that. It's like every time you're doing it, you're, sh you're, sh 
proving to yourself that you can do it. Right. That's empowering. Right. That's yeah. why we run together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it is a, it is such a nice feeling just to get around other people who, who get it. I mean, it just, it just makes, it just makes sense. It makes it the, the general level of anxiety just drops, you know, anxiety is not going to help anybody. You follow me on Dexcom. Yes, I do. It's, it's been a while. Um, yeah. and I don't know at what point we decided to follow each other. Yeah. But what did, what did that bring to you? And it's, it's crazy to me that we have this technology where we can follow each other and, and, and it's you and, and two other friends. And at any time of the, of the day or night, I can check in with them and know where they are and they can check in with me and know where I am. And there's something great about just normalizing this whole thing, you know, just having a, a community where we've got each other's backs, but it's also nice. It's probably not nice for you, but it's nice when I get a little update and then I check and it says Craig's low, which means you're, you're so low that your Dexcom can't even like. <laughs> It can't even contemplate how low you are. You're that low. And I check in with you and you're fine. Like you're actually on a bike somewhere, yeah. like doing your exercising. Um, and you're not like, you're just like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I had a couple tabs. I'm going to be fine. And then I watch and you're fine. It's just, it's just more evidence that there will be highs and there will be lows. Literally there will be curveballs, but it will be fine. You know, if you know what you're doing, you will eventually be fine. Yeah. You last ran the New York Marathon mm -hmm. days before you were diagnosed with type 2. Right. And now you're going to be running it again yeah. for the first time since. Mm -hmm. Is that significant to you? Yeah. Have you thought about the weight of that? I have. I really have. It definitely feels like uh, it feels like a sequel. There's like a new villain in town, you know, who's bigger than the first one, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take him down. Yeah, it feels it feels like a full circle kind of a thing. I'm really ready for it. And and the fact that I'm doing it with a bunch of other type one people and we will I don't think that we're necessarily going to run as a pack, but we'll be able to communicate with each other. You know, we'll be there with each other at the, at the begin at the starting line, at the finish line. You know, we'll be we'll be going through the whole training process together on some level or another, even though we're all in different cities. Yeah, I'd like doing it as a community, it's more significant than just crossing the finish line. Like it's it's doing it, it's building community, it's showing the rest of the world that these things can be done. I hope eradicating some of the ignorance about what diabetes is and what you can and cannot do. From, you know, just, just about two years ago when we met mm -hmm. and you were asking me, how do I exercise yeah. with type one? And now yeah. you're the captain of a beyond type one mm -hmm. team running a marathon right like that's a that's a, a big change in two years it really is it really is but i mean it's there's not a lot of time to lose if i'm gonna get comfortable i might as well get busy with it i've come so far in the last year largely because of type one run just getting out and doing these things and watching my levels and just learning from experience like what works and what doesn't has been so significant. And now I'm like, I'm afraid of losing toenails and having my nipples bleed and all the things that you worry about when you're doing something like this that a human being should not do because it's stupid. I'm worried about those things, but I'm not worried about dropping dead. You know, I know that, I know that we're going to be fine. You know, I don't know. I know I'm going to be fine. Thinking about meeting other people with type one mm -hmm. 
and this sort of idea of of learning how do I live. Mm-hmm. Does that make you think of any songs? Oh wow, God damn it! We're back to the song. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about it. Um, I might have it, and it's not, it doesn't directly relate, but it's one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, and it's from the show Company. It's a Stephen Sondheim show, basically autobiographical. It's about this guy who at the time is turning 30. It was, and this was in the sixties when turning 30 was a huge big deal and he's single. And, uh, and so the whole show is like his married friends trying to set him up and like trying to push him in certain directions and, and all that. And, and he is resistant. Like he wants to, he wants to keep living the life that he wants, you know, that's just kind of his, where he doesn't have to answer to anybody. And then it's like, it all builds to this crescendo at the end of the show. And he sings this song called Being Alive. He lists all of the things that are annoying about relationships. Like, you know, someone to like sit in your chair and someone to ruin your sleep and, and all that. And, uh, and then there's this change in the middle of it. And it's like, and then he's saying like, someone, somebody sit in my chair, somebody ruined my sleep. And it's like he he understands the value of the things that are annoying and of like thinking of somebody other than himself. You know what I mean? And thinking of like thinking of all the complications and thinking of other people like that is what is being alive. Like so the song is called Being Alive. He has this revelation at the end of the show that it is like it is thinking past yourself. That is what makes life worthwhile. And uh, and it's not just like mindless pursuit of pleasure the way that he had been thinking. But it's a little bit like that. Like it's all of these things, like, you know, being super conscious of like every gram of every everything that I put into my body. That to me was always like what health food store people and, you know, y- you know, yoga women with dangly earrings and, you know, and Birkenstocks. And like that, that was there. But now that's like, that has to be my world. That has to be my world. That is how I'm going to stay alive. And it's good. It's been good for me. You know, and the community that sprung up around it has been really good for me. Yeah. It's a thing that I that I initially saw as like a massive pain, and it is, but it's also, you know, it's good. And I take an active role in my own health, which is nice. Someone to hold you too close Someone to hurt you too deep Betazel's produced, recorded, and edited by me, Craig Steubing, and our theme music is by Purple Glitter. Be sure to subscribe to Betazel wherever you listen to podcasts to get new episodes delivered automatically to you. If you love Beta Cell and our new show, Out of Range, which, if you don't, I'm surprised you've listened all the way to the credits, you can help support us financially at any amount on our Patreon page. Visit betacellpodcast.com forward slash supporters for more information. We even have some awesome Beta Cell swag to send you as a thanks. Dave has an excellent autobiography titled Party of One that you can find wherever fine books are sold. For more information about Type 1 Run, visit type1run.org. If you want to donate to the Beyond Type 1 New York City Marathon team, you can find them at beyondtype1.org. Hey, buddy, don't be afraid it won't be perfect. The only 
thing to be afraid of, really, is that it won't be. I'm Craig Steubing, and this is Beta Cell. Somebody crown me with love. Somebody force me to care. Somebody let me come through. I'll always be there, as frightened as you, to help us survive.